Hey world, Dr. Scott Sigmund here. Today's episode of the Ortho Show podcast is going to be sponsored by Ortho Laser Orthopedic Laser Centers. I am absolutely convinced that the effects of this pandemic are going to linger for months, if not years. The way in which we deliver medical care is going to be changed forever. We have no idea when the operating rooms are open. There's going to be a long line for elective surgery. And when they do reopen, we're not even sure if we're going to be at full capacity. Basically, there's going to be a huge backlog of elective joint replacement for the elderly. There's also going to be many young patients that are going to say, you know, I just can't do surgery right now, doc. I need to get back into the workforce. I need to earn some money. I need to provide for my family. So basically, we're going to have to be forced as, as docs to find alternative treatment options for our patients for acute and chronic pain. Ortho Laser, Orthopedic Laser Centers, powered by MLS M8 Laser Technology, is going to be that solution. Uh, the FDA-cleared MLS M8 laser treatments are painless and only take about 10 minutes. So here's the deal, everybody. Our ortho laser centers are currently open in Boston, Newburgh, New York, Lexington, Kentucky, Pensacola, Florida, and soon to be opening in Atlanta, Hartford, and Portsmouth, New Hampshire. These franchise opportunities are available at this time all across the country. So whether you're an interested patient or a doctor who wants to know more, please visit www.ortholaserwithaz.com. Again, www.ortholaserwithaz.com to learn more. From Medical Media, this is The Ortho Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite original opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon here to host another episode of The Ortho Show podcast. We have one of my favorite orthopedic surgeons on the planet with us today. We're going to have a fun episode. Uh, we're, we're brothers of another mother. We hang out. We do a lot of the same stuff. But uh, well, without a doubt, he's one of my dear friends and a great colleague. He's the chief of orthopedics and the director of sports medicine at Lord's Medical Center in New Jersey. I would like to describe Sean as one of our rising stars and the new guard of our orthopedic surgeons. Hello, Sean O. How are you, brother? Scotty, how you doing? I'm doing great, man. So what's cooking in New Jersey? It's the same old. We're, we're doing telehealth. Uh, we're keeping our patients safe, and we're all waiting for the go-ahead to get back to doing what we're good at. So you're actually in the office. I can see all those like bone models in the background there. So you're seeing patients today. Yeah, so, so our, our model is uh, right now we're, we're doing telehealth primarily. Uh, the, the hospital's been great about setting that up for us. And we're seeing urgent cases uh, in the office, people that maybe may have fractured something, people that have failed um, telemedicine and need to be evaluated a little closer, and first post-ops. That's sort of our algorithm. And if you're, if you're doing surgery, it's probably all the emergency type stuff. You're not doing any elective stuff yet. Not, nothing elective, uh, mainly fractures and uh, infections. And so no time-sensitive rotator cuff emergencies that you're doing right now? No, we haven't seen that. I mean, I know there's guidelines that are out there uh, in the area. There's some doctors that if it's less than six weeks, will actually uh, treat that acutely. I haven't come across that patient yet, so I haven't been faced with that dilemma. Yeah, I think that the, that's a, actually a pretty reasonable one. If there is a, a massive avulsed acute rotator cuff tear with pseudoparalysis, it's probably not unreasonable if you have a safe environment. Perhaps you have a surgery center rather than a hospital. But, uh, you know, times are, times are changing. We're, uh, we're going to start doing some elective surgery up here uh, just north of the border in New Hampshire, so I'm ramping up for that for next week. It's going to be a slow start for us for sure. Now, I know that New Jersey has been hit really hard. Um, you know, you guys are, are, are really deep into the pandemic. So what, what, what are your responsibilities? Was there a time when, 
they were mustering all for all responsibilities. Talk to us. Yeah, so uh, I'm in uh, central to south Jersey around the Cherry Hill, Burlington area, and we're right on that sort of cusp. So imagine we're on the shoreline watching the tsunami come. Uh, you know, New York's you know, 45 minutes to an hour away. North Jersey's getting it bad. You know, we're getting it, but it's manageable. Uh, our hospitalization rate of COVID positive or suspected it's about 40 to 45 percent in our health system. Uh, and we actually, a couple weeks ago, started all hands on deck, uh, meaning uh, they came to us, the health system, and said we need everyone available. And they started doing some ICU training uh, for the different surgeons. And by no means do I mean I was managing vents. But, you know, they had us there, get familiar with the ER, get familiar with the ICU, find out how we can help uh, and lend a hand, whether it's, you know, putting orders in or, you know, returning patients uh, just to be available. And, and knock on wood, it looks like we're going to avoid the need to actually uh, be called upon. But I think the drill was important to get us all ready and, and able to go. Good. So you're not managing ventilators and PEEP and all these other stuff. No, no. But we, we did prepare. They offered classes for us online. And, <laughs> you know, it was, it was scary stuff for a hot minute there. I mean, I think of peeps. I think of those those marshmallow candies. That's what I'm familiar with. I'm not going to be managing any peep on a ventilator, that's for sure. But, you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear uh, that things are starting to sort of open up. And I think that's a very similar message. You know, uh, we, have, uh, we have mutual friends around the country, and it seems to be a very different experience uh, depending on where you are. But let's, let's move on. I mean, you know, the, epidemic, the pandemic is here, but we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. I want to talk about some of the really cool things that are happening in orthopedics, and we'll also talk a little bit about maybe how they're going to change as we come out of this as to what options and things that we're looking for. One of the things that that you know is near and dear to my heart uh, as the OG or the original opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon is is opioid-free surgery. So, you know, you are one of my my dear friends and colleagues who embraced this uh, really early on and we appreciate you for that. But just tell us about your experience and, and how opioid sparing surgery has really improved your ability as a doctor. Yeah, so you remember those old commercials? I learned it from watching you. Well, we kind of we stole some of that from you in, in a roundabout way. But uh, you know, opioid sparing surgery is something that's been you know, certainly a game changer in our practice. And then it really spread like wildfire across you know, the region. So now, yeah, I'd say the majority of the sports medicine surgeons in my area are certainly doing opioid sparing techniques, however you want to describe it. Um, we, we did some research here. We actually published a paper last year looking at the use of uh, opioid-sparing techniques for interscaling blocks for rotator cuff surgeries, and we found... So, so just because we've got some, we got some patients that are listening and some people, just, just walk us through what a scaling block means so that the average person understands. Yeah, that's a great point, Scott. So basically what it means is before we actually get to the operating room, my anesthesiologist uh, is going to work with you to basically numb... Uh, your arm. So they'll use an ultrasound. Uh, they'll make you a little bit sleepy so that way you don't feel or remember anything. And they're going to inject some numbing medicine around the nerves uh, in the shoulder. Uh, and that's going to provide lasting relief of pain for anywhere between 24 to 72 hours uh, in varying degrees. And, th- and that's real important because if you've ever had a shoulder arthroscopy done in the past and there was a nerve block done uh, you know, prior to this sort of new iteration, the block would wear off almost like a light switch, and patients would wake up with pain that was through the roof, and then you spend you know days chasing it with uh, narcotics or, or other modalities. Instead, the, the opioids are, aren't really required now because the block wears off like an airplane landing, so it's a gradual wear-off, and the patients can get in front of it with Tylenol, with ice, so it, it's really slick. And we found at seven days, Scott, the average number of narcotics needed for rotator cuff surgery was only two pills. That's an absolutely phenomenally amazing statistic, right, Sean? I mean, prior to this, 
no one wanted a rotator cuff repair. They'd walk in the office and you'd suggest it and they'd be like, they're running for the door. Somebody else had it. They slept in a recliner for six weeks. You know, they were on opioids for three to six months. They lost their job. It took them six months to recover. But it's amazing that the change in the paradigm now as to how much better their recoveries are. Don't you agree? Oh, yeah. And it makes makes our surgery better, right? So because the block works so good, you know, there's no bleeding intraoperatively. You know, the patient's blood pressure doesn't rise. Uh, We can see better. We can go quicker. Patients have better outcomes. So everyone sort of looks like a rock star when it's done right. So two pills out of your study, which is so remarkable, I think the stat, the stat was upwards of 17% of patients that underwent rotator cuff repair were still on you know, narcotics out to, sec, out to six months. So that's a real, real game changer. And, you know, people talk to each other. They go to church, they go to the, the market, they, and, they, and they say, you know, what did you have done? You had a rotator cuff repair and you're walking around, you don't have that thing on and you're moving your arm. I mean, people are really so impressed by that. And so it's really become a major part of our, our practice. And you know, early on when we first started talking about opioid sparing surgery, you know, I started about seven years ago. You were not too far behind, but you know, we couldn't fill a room. It was like, what are you talking about? You know, I'm not. I'm, I'm going to give patients sixty pills. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm on call. I'm not on call this week, and I don't want to get calls and all that other stuff. And mm-hmm. so, to sort of change the paradigm of the entire system has really been difficult. But uh, now, with rock stars like yourself and and Paul Favorito and Sharif Bashay and Eamon Ferry and Narav Amin and and, uh, and and Vindasa and then the list goes on, we've got these superheroes out now that are really out there on the podium and expressing how this type of of change in the way in which we operate really is beneficial both for the patients as well as us. Right? I mean, we don't have to write the scripts anymore. Yeah. And, and the PAs that see the patients post-op, you know, they used to have to always write a script, get permission to do it. Now it doesn't happen anymore. And it's something you touched on earlier, Scott. It, it's obviously the surgeons, it's the anesthesiologists, but the culture change we had to uh, sort of you know, get through over the first three to six months was how to change the story to the patients, their families, the PACU nurses, pre-admission testing, because if everyone has a single message that we're going to make your shoulder better, you're not going to have pain. You got to trust us on this. You know, then we're all on the same page. If the patient's here for me, don't take your opioids. And the PACU nurse says, make sure you take it before the block wears off. It, it's two different stories. And patients don't know what to do. So I, I took a lot of effort on my part, and I know your part, to sit everyone down, extra time out of our lives, away from our families, to educate everyone else that's involved. Yeah, and it's like a liberating thing now. It's like we don't write. A, we barely write a first prescription, much less a second prescription. And we don't have to worry about people, you know, calling for refills or becoming addicted to medications. It's just our quality of life as surgeons as well really has become improved as well as our PAs and nurse practitioners. And we're doing some cool stuff in, in the, as, doc, as Dr. Favorito would say, in the inferior extremity, what some of us would call it the lower extremity. But uh, we're doing cool stuff around knees, total knees, ACLs and stuff too, aren't we? Yeah, so again, you're more of a total knee guy than I am. I'll do my you know typical couple a month, uh, but we really have changed the story behind that. So when you think about the two most painful procedures you can do, it's what rotator cuff and, and total knees, and we've changed that paradigm as well. I'm doing stuff preoperatively uh, to minimize pain around the knee by freezing some nerves. I'm doing injections of long-acting medicines during surgery. I'm putting them on a multimodal cocktail from the day they uh, hit the, the the holding area downstairs, carrying out five to seven days with different non-narcotic meds. uh, And then we're really educating. It's it's almost like a speech pattern. And I think those sort of algorithms are what you need. It's not one drug. It's not one, you know, technique. It's it's a multimodal approach across all layers. Yeah, I completely agree. And so, you know, one of the other things that we have also in common, which I think 
has really helped out with rotator cuff surgery. Martha Shaden, if you're listening, you know, we, we love you, but I'm still going to call it the cow patch. So <laughs> it's uh, known as the Regenitin bovine bioinductive implant for all those patients out there that have no idea what I just said. So we just call it the cow patch. And, and what's funny is if you Google cow patch, I think I'm like number three on the oh, list. <laughs> so so don't, don't you get a sense that, you know, with the use of that implant that we're seeing some pain relief in the patients for rotator cuff surgery as well? Yeah, I mean, that's one of those examples, Scott, where it's a different paradigm because we're doing a different surgery. So speaking selfishly, in my population that used to have high-grade partial tears, I always took them down. If I didn't debride them, I took them down. I didn't really have good success with trans-tendinous repairs for a variety of reasons. So, you know, if you cut the tendon, you then cause microfractures into the bone by putting three or four anchors in, it hurts. Um, so by adding a biologic agent uh, to help the, the tendon heal and restore some normal anatomy without disrupting the tension on the shoulder, I think that is a pain reliever in and of itself because we're not causing the damage we normally do when we say we're fixing someone. Yeah, just for, so the audience or the listeners understand, it basically it's a collagen scaffold that's made from the Achilles tendon of a, of a cow species down in New Zealand, and then they sort of re-put it back together. It's like a little postage stamp. It doesn't have it doesn't hold a suture. It's not strong, but it's it's a scaffold. And for whatever reason, our cells like to grow into it, and it creates a fairly rapid uh, healing response. And we've seen you know dramatic changes in the post op recovery. Remember when we were sort of all in the room together as the surgeon advisory board, and we're all looking at each other. We're like, "Are you guys seeing what I'm seeing here?" I'm like, "You know, what are we going to do with the slings and this, that, and the other?" And we came up with a protocol, didn't we? Yeah, we worked on that protocol. I remember it was at the Arthroscopy Association meeting a couple of years back. And I think part of the thing was it was almost liberating to hear, hey, you're having good results too, because we were kind of scared to say, you know, I'm no longer putting my rotator cuffs in a sling for, you know, four weeks, six weeks. I got them out in a week or two, and it was a game changing thing, but it was kind of scary. So it was good to have colleagues that you trust to say, hey, I'm seeing the same stuff, and let's pool our data, let's look at it, and let's show the world we can do something different. Yeah, so it's really been uh, it's really been a game changer for us as well. So let's talk a little bit more as we're sort of emerging. You know, this is the this is the hot topic now. Like, what, what, how are we gonna how we're gonna you know do different in our practice? We talk about we've talked about telemedicine. We've talked about some PT platforms, uh, but I think that you know the surgery uh, the the cue for surgery is going to start adding up, and there's going to be some patients in particular that really aren't going to want surgery. We talked about that a bunch as well. One of the things that that I was using in clinical practice and you have even more experience with is the, is the in-office arthroscopy. I want you to really talk to us about your experience with that and how you think that's going to, how, how it's aided your practice previously, but how you think it's going to maybe change as we move forwards. Yeah. So this is literally like one of those labors of love for, for no other way to put it. Uh, Needle arthroscopy, what Scott's alluding to, is simply I have a way in the office uh, where you can come in with a pathology. I think you have a meniscus tear or rotator cuff tear. I can numb you up, uh, much like going to the dentist, and then through a small needle, I can look into your shoulder, your knee, and, and I can see do you have a tear of the meniscus, the ACL, the cuff, and save you the trip to the MRI machine, save you two or three weeks of turnaround time between different visits, and really come up with a plan to get you back on your feet quicker. And sort of the next frontier, which we're starting to see, Scott, is we now have the ability to start treating in the office. You know, there's different companies that have different devices out there uh, that allow you to sort of do uh, in-office procedures if that is your, 
you know, mode of, uh, of treatment for patients. And the benefit to that in my small, you know, uh, series of patients has, has been great. Patients are walking out after a meniscectomy feeling better than what they, they could have. No anesthesia, no opioids, uh, no physical therapy. So I, I think certainly even if we don't do it in the office, there's a role to maybe transition that to the ASC setting where we can get them in and out quicker because we won't require the ventilators. We won't require some of the setup and the cleanup. So we can maybe do a meniscectomy in the ASC using minimally invasive te- uh, tools and techniques. So, so that's great, Sean. So let's just, again, I want the, I want the listeners to really understand what we're talking about. It's, you literally, we just numb up, we, we sort of prep the skin, you numb it up. There's this, uh, a needle that gets attached to a wire that gets attached to basically an, an iPad device, uh, a pad device. And you can literally, with the patient, literally right there, you can watch the inside of your knee or your shoulder while you're wide awake because you've only had local anesthetic. There's no sedation. Anesthesia is not involved. And then when you're done, you just put a little band-aid on and you'd get back into your car and you drive yourself home. There's no need for somebody dropping you off and picking you up. It's really pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's it's it sounds crazy, right? I, so I'll give you a, a good funny backstory, Scott. You know, the first time I actually saw this in its current iteration uh, was about maybe five years ago, um, and there was a local rep uh, who, long and short, I met him at a bar, just sort of you know we're just sort of chit chatting and stuff at a restaurant, and he's telling me what he does, and I remember seeing the old vision scope, Tom Gill's sort of creation years ago as a fellow. And as the guy's telling me this, I said, "Oh my god, I got to see this." He goes, "Well, it's in my trunk. Do you want to see it?" So we walk out to his car. He's got a bell pepper in his trunk. This is a we, classic New Jersey story. You guys are oh, always oh. going out to the trunks in the back of cars for weird stuff. But we, we, don't want, we don't want to talk about that. <laughs> but he, he pulls out a red bell pepper, this little tablet with a first or second generation you know, needle scope. We pop it in there, and I can see all the seeds to, to the bell pepper. <laughs> and I looked at the guy and said, My, this, is, this is exactly what I've always wanted to see. And you know, yada, 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 we're, we're here now, and there's probably five or six companies that are chomping at the bit to change the way we treat patients in the office. Yeah, no, so there's a few things that people always get nervous about, right? You know, we're, and oh, for, for one, you know, orthopedic surgeons are really good for change, right? No problem. You want us to do something new, we'll sign right up. Not even close, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> no innovation. I'd be very happy to keep doing all the stuff I learned in residency and never have to change another thing again, but that's not the real world. And innovation and new ideas are happening all the time. So, but one of the questions that we get all the time is, you know, don't, you're going to get an infection. You're going to get everybody an infection and the infection rates high. So talk to us about that. Yes. So that was something that I was obviously concerned about. And uh, luckily I was able to get about seven or eight guys together that do a good volume of needle scopes. And we we published a paper uh, 2018 looking at 1,500 needle arthroscopies across all, all comers in the country, and we found the infection rate was no different than that of a normal injection into the knee or the shoulder. Uh, you know, of the, all the things we saw, we had a couple patients that early on would have vasovagal events, maybe almost pass out. But really, that's something where once we got better with our numbing techniques, it's not an issue anymore. I have not had a patient do that on me in probably years at this point uh, because, you know, we're just better at what we do. And uh, so I'm not worried about infections. I'm not worried about people passing out. I know they can tolerate it well. And, and the coolest thing, Scott, is this. When you have a patient that you can identify their pathology right there, they know they're not crazy. I can show them on the little tablet what it is because no one mm-hmm. knows how to read an MRI. You know, they go, oh, my God. And they're Snapchatting it. They're videoing it. We're giving them oh, the, yeah. the, 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 the discs. So you know, they, they love it. And then they'll send two of their friends because you know, they got the answer right then and there. And that, that's really the game changer for my practice. So what are you so what are you doing? Sticking a little mini Hoover vacuum in there? How are you doing that meniscectomy? 
Yeah. So again, there's a variety of ways. When I did it, I was able to get the wrist set. Uh, we have a mini wrist set uh, from my hospital. Um, so we used uh, basically two seven, two nine biters and shavers, um, and we actually brought a pump in, uh, and and we're able to do that with no cleanup, uh, you know, really no fluid loss, which was great. Um, Arthrex has some great disposable devices, which I've tried as well. Uh, they're good as well. So it's more a matter of you know where you're at. Are you in a hospital? Are you in a surgery center? Are you in the office? You know, what's your price point? But the point is the technology is evolving. It's coming. Uh, I was able to work with a, a company, Trice, to design an in-office uh, knee post as well as a shoulder distractor, much like we use in the OR. And that allows you to gap the shoulder, gap the knee, and maneuver. So, you know, the risk of iatrogenic injury is, is almost nothing now, Scott. Awesome. And there was also another study you were involved in, right, when you were comparing uh, the, the ability to diagnose with in-office arthroscopy versus MRI? So that that was actually Josh Jine's study. Uh, okay. Josh Jine's out of New York looked at this and actually found the sensitivity and specificity uh, was better th- than an MRI. And that's kind of common sense to us orthopods, uh, only because we know that diagnostic arthroscopy, being able to see and being able to touch and palpate, uh, is is really the gold standard versus an MRI, which can have a false positive rate. That's fantastic. So the bottom line is is that there's amazing technology. And what I keep hearing after podcast after podcast, it seems to me like some guys had some really good ideas and they're sort of plodding along, you know, they're doing okay. And then all of a sudden the pandemic hits and then you realize that this is a tool that you're going to probably be able to use in many more ways than you anticipated you know, previously. So with a massive queue of backed up patients and this, that, and the other, be able to have a diagnostic arthroscopy or maybe even a little metastectomy and have it under local anesthetic and go back to work, you know, the next day or maybe two days later, that's pretty impressive for sure. You know, that's the part, Scott, you can't underestimate, right? So when you do a knee scope, even in the best of hands, patients are on crutches for a day or two normally, right? They're doing therapy because the quad shuts down. If you could treat them without the anesthesia, without the quad shut down, without the pain, you know, they don't need to miss the time from work and no one's going to have you know, PPO time or PTL time after this because they've been out or furloughed or whatever it might be. So they need to get fixed so they can work, but go back to work right away. And that's where I think we're going to see the change. Yeah, that's fantastic. Shano, it has been a pleasure, brother. You, uh, I'm so proud of you and all the great stuff that you're doing as a rising star in orthopedics. I can't, uh, I can't, uh, I look every day on LinkedIn, can't wait to see what you're doing next, <laughs> despite some of our friends. But uh, no, it's really a pleasure having you on. This is the type of things that we're going to talk about as the ortho show moves through with me as the host. We're going to bring on interesting uh, orthopedic surgeons as well as people related to that orthopedic space and how it will affect you uh, as individuals. Uh, I want to thank our sponsor. This is Dr. Scott Sigman, hashtag follow the fro, host of the ortho show. Till next time.